Hello and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. Welcome to 2017. This is our first episode of the new year and we are very excited to welcome Joel Rosenberg, New York Times bestselling author, to our podcast. Joy and I got a chance to talk to him early December when he was here in the Tyndale offices and it was a great conversation. We talked about his writing process, his books, his background as a political consultant, and kind of what he's up to now. So if you're a fan of Joel Rosenberg or just a fan of writing or fiction authors or just hearing us talk to authors in general, you will very much enjoy this episode. We have a special offer for podcast listeners. If you use the offer code ARC10, that's A-R-C and the number 10, at checkout at Tyndale.com, you'll get 10% off your entire order. Now, if you're a Joel Rosenberg fan, we have a ton of great Joel Rosenberg books already on sale, so you'll get an additional 10% off if you use the offer code ARC10 at checkout. So there will be a link in the show notes of this episode to a whole bunch of Joel Rosenberg books on sale, or you can just browse around Tyndale.com and pick out your favorite books or Bibles, and you'll get 10% off your order at checkout. And remember, if you spend $35 or more, you get free shipping. So please enjoy our interview with Joel Rosenberg. Uh, we want to welcome New York Times bestselling author Joel Rosenberg, who's actually here at the Tyndale offices. We're always excited when we get to talk to an author face-to-face, and you braved the Chicago winter to come visit us. I actually, you you live most of the time in Israel. I actually don't know anything about the weather. Well, there's so, no snow. No snow. Uh, every now and then up in Jerusalem, uh, you'll have some snow, and in fact, because there's no snow removal equipment to speak of, um, even half an inch an inch will shut things down and the schools will be closed and the kids are having snowball fights and you see these pictures. I've never, however, been there during that. I am always seem to be traveling when that happens. Also up in the north, uh, the biggest mountain in Israel is Mount Hermon and it's, uh, it's part of it slopes down into Lebanon and part of it slopes down into Syria and then the other part is Israel and they're snowboarding and skiing up there. And so that's fascinating because, uh, you know, when I first did my first book uh, in this ISIS series, The Third Target, I'm in the United States in January, traveling for a month, speaking about ISIS as a genocidal force, right? And the next thing I know, I get text messages from my wife, the kids are snowboarding on Mount Hermon. I'm like, okay, see, if they go down the wrong slope, they're in uh, genocidal Syria, right? If you go down the other side, you'll be in Hezbollah, Iran-controlled southern Lebanon. Oh, no. So, you know, whereas most places there are, you know, this is Black Diamond, you need to, you know, there's moguls. This is like, okay, there's, you know, I don't know, AK-47 signs this way and big sword sign. You know, you got to be careful which which trail. So, wow. um, so it's fun to see snow. We only have a little bit there, but uh, yeah. somehow it's different from here. <laughs> that was not the ex- answer I was expecting. Well, that was, no. that was good. Try to yeah. keep you off guard. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's fun to be here. I'm, I, you know, I don't, I don't get uh, that often to be here uh, at Tyndall headquarters, but uh, this is, so it's been such a great family and everyone's been so kind and so supportive, like the skill sets that you all bring to um, help me with these books and, and drive them out there in the marketplace. It's been phenomenal and I've been, you know, super grateful. So it's fun to fun to actually be here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't you didn't start as a writer. You had a, a 
career before that. Right. Well, I'm one of the few Jews in America that didn't get the financial gene. No. So I'm not your stockbroker, your hedge fund manager. Um, I'm not your Wall Street wizard. But I didn't seem to get the other classic Jewish skill sets either. I'm not your lawyer. I'm not your doctor. I'm not even your chiropractor. Like, I somehow missed all the really good ones. So um, I'm a failed political consultant. Um, everyone I ever worked for in politics lost or retired in disgust. Or, uh, admittedly, I, I, I was on Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu's comeback campaign team in 2000. He was preparing to try to become the prime minister again after having lost, after having served for three years. But he was blocked and did not come back for nine more years. So I played no useful role in that. So really, I, I am a political thriller writer who had a failed experience in politics, but, I, but that was useful. I mean, in the sense that uh, not a lot of political thriller writers have actually been involved in politics, which I'm not sure that you need that. But one of the things it did do me is it, it, it did do for me is it gave me a sense of how Washington works. And I got to meet a lot of people that I was able to draw from in terms of research over the years. That's been enormously helpful. And I think I also write political thrillers for the ear of people in politics, right? I, it, most of my readers obviously are throughout the United States or Canada or worldwide who have no contact to politics and would like to avoid it. But if they're reading a political thriller, obviously they want it to feel realistic. But I also want presidents, prime minister, kings, generals, senators, governors to also find them interesting. Um, and that requires it being realistic enough that they that, that it's worth their time. And that's been fun to see the types of people um, around, the, around Washington and around the world that have uh, picked up my novels and mm-hmm. somehow liked them anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell us, Joe, why you write fiction. You know, what, what's your gravitation towards that genre? Yeah. How have you developed as a fiction author? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I, I think part of that is, so as I mentioned, uh, uh, I'm Jewish on my father's side and Gentile on my mom's side. So my f- Orthodox Jewish father's family escaped out of Russia. He was born in the States, but his family escaped out of uh, the, under the czarist times, the pogroms, the horrific treatment of Jews in the early 1900s. Why do I say that? Because Russian Jews are pessimists by nature. We're not glass half, half full people, we're glass half empty people. In fact, there's a crack in the glass and it's leaking and it'll all be gone by tomorrow, probably by tonight. That's unfortunately because of our heritage, the way we look at the world. So now as a believer, um, you know, I have to push back against worst case scenario thinking, constant pessimism, right? With the Holy Spirit and a wonderful spirit-filled Gentile wife that helps offset um, that fear that bad things are coming. And so... But it's great at, to, be a no, to be a novelist, to be a, uh, a, I don't know how I would write Francine Rivers stuff, or, you know, I can't write, there's a lot of things I wouldn't know how, you know, Anna Green Gables, I can't do that. I, there's, I, but I'm writing worst case scenarios. And who knew? Being a pessimistic Russian Jew, uh, there's a job for being a worst case scenario person. Become a political thriller writer. Hmm. I think the job of a political thriller writer is to write a what-if scenario. 
it has to be, what if this bad thing happened, how would we handle it? But it has to be have such high stakes that it would be compelling to read and not just think, well, I could just read that in the newspaper. Like I, it has to be bigger than that, but it also has to be plausible. Um, and finding that mix of high stakes, really bad scenarios that haven't happened, and I'm not saying that they should, I'm not saying that they will, but that they could if our leaders aren't paying attention, if they're not preparing to protect us adequately, effectively. So in a, in a sense, uh, writing fiction allows me to explore fears, fears of what could happen, with a dash, honestly, of, of prophecy. Not all of my novels, but some of them look at, okay, the Bible tells us some worst case scenarios. It explains to us in advance some of what's coming in the future. Now, we can't say exactly when it will happen, and we can't even most often say exactly how it will happen. So fiction allows a wargaming process. You can say, okay, this is a prophecy, this is what it says, now let's imagine how that might happen if, if it were to happen in our lifetime. Not saying it will, we don't know if it will, but what if, what might it look like? And that will draw people into a Tom Clancy, Vince Flynn-esque story with an element of, hmm, I didn't know that, I, I never even heard that there was a prophecy about the destruction of Damascus or a Russian-Iranian alliance or some of these other threats. And so uh, that's, a, that's a several different reasons, but, but fiction allows me to kind of go into those areas and imagine really bad things, but also weave in hope and heroes. Yes. How, not that you, we're always gonna win, not that we're always going to be able to stop what's happening, especially if it's prophetic, it's going to happen. The question would be how do you handle yourself in an in a, in a honorable, even heroic manner in the midst of worst case scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can yeah. you, oh, thank you. You um, mentioned so heroes. so to each other. Oh, sorry, <laughs> <cut> that <laughs> That's nice. Not every radio show is that way. It's like, we're like, 40 episodes in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got this. Um, so you speak of... That's the Tyndale advantage, <laughs> yes. right? I guess. We wouldn't do well on uh, Fox or MSNBC. Or you guys shout at each other, yell at each other, cut each oh. other off. Come on. <laughs> Um, you speak of so heroes. Midwestern nice. Okay, what? Sorry, that, what? <laughs> I didn't mean to throw you. Now <laughs> no. she's so embarrassed of being I'm just so nice. To make a good cut. Oh, no, like, okay, but, um, so you speak of heroes, Joel, and your your third book for a trilogy that you've been writing comes out in March. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The hero I'm speaking of is J.B. Collins, right. of course. Well, Collins is an interesting uh, character, and I want to say a. a, a, a this is really to the credit of the Tyndale leadership team that they let me write people that are not classic Christian heroes, right? So this one is a drunk. He's divorced. He doesn't know Christ. And he's my hero. <laughs> like that's not classically your, your person in, 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 in Christian fiction. Now, admittedly, I don't think of myself as writing Christian fiction. I'm writing fiction. I want to compete up against the biggest, best-selling uh, thriller writers uh, in the world. I am a believer, and there's, a, there's always a key faith element in the book. And, um, but Collins is not your classic, off-the-shelf Christian hero, because uh, he's mostly not a Christian. Um, he's on a spiritual journey. 
previously, David Shirazi in the last series, a CIA operative, Iranian background, he's a Muslim. My hero is a Muslim. Now, how many Christian publishing companies do you know of where the hero is Muslim? Now, he himself goes on a spiritual journey. But uh, one of the reasons I do this is because I feel like the Christian audience who's reading it is only part of my audience. The broader audience is, is the general market uh, person who is more likely to be sitting and having a latte at Barnes & Noble on a Sunday morning, reading the New York Times, picking up a political thriller that might be interesting, than sitting at you know a church service. So the Christian is kind of watching, okay, what, what is going on in this story, but gives a lot of latitude, I feel like, as a reader. The unbelieving reader is thinking that they need, they need a vantage point. They need to be able to look at the at this story through the eyes of someone that they're more likely to identify, which is a, a skeptic of Christianity or a critic or even maybe hostile, not as somebody who's, who all the lingo, all the jargon, all the doctrine is all already baked in, right? So uh, now Collins is one I, I like a lot because um, he he's a risk taker, right? And I mean, I think, uh, John Bennett, my character in the first novel, he was not a risk taker. He did not want to be, he was a Wall Street guy. He did not want to work for the White House. He did not want to be um, drawn into terrorism. He, at one point, he's hiding under a limousine <laughs> in Gaza in the midst of a, a suicide bomber uh, moment, and he has to make a decision. He's much more like Frodo being pulled into a story that he doesn't want to be part of. Hmm. Collins is a character who... Um, he wants to be in the story. He thrives off the adrenaline of being what he calls part of the tribe. Uh, he, want, he loves being a war correspondent. It's his identity. Now, he's therefore willing, if he, if he sniffs a story, the Islamic State might have captured chemical weapons in Syria, but I can't write that story unless I can prove it. i got to get someone on the record. The only way to do that is to sneak into hellish war-torn Syria and try to find an ISIS commander and get him on the record. To which his editor says, that's insane. No, you may not go into Syria. Which of course then he does, right? That's a different type of character. I'm not that character. I write fiction, you know, yeah. and then go have a latte yeah. and think, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to sneak into Syria, uh, war-torn Syria. You could but snow snowboard. Into back, it. Yeah, yeah. My, no, I have a son who is more likely to become that type of person. Oh, hopefully, a, you know, as a believer. But anyway, it's it's a fun challenge as a writer to to write someone that you're not, who who probably will do things that you wouldn't, um, and um, and, but he's also there's been, there's been a price for him. Uh, in the, he has lost a marriage. He is a recovering alcoholic. He, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who is on to a big story and is willing to take big risks to get it, but it's coming at a toll. And that was just another element. I, I'm not trying to write about action heroes. Um, I, I'm trying to write about people who are dealing with worst case scenarios from you know, a multiple different angles um, and have multiple motivations mm -hmm. and some of them you know going after the story is partly a professional 
ambition. It's partly, I would love to, I want the world to be reading what I write. So I want the president of the United States to read this on the front page. This is, that's some, doing something important, right? That's sort of Colin's motivation. But it, it comes at a price and it, he's being tested constantly. Is this price worth it? People are dying around him. And he's got people who love him who are fearful that he will die as well. Some of whom are doing that because they're fearful of his spiritual lostness, mm -hmm. and some just because they don't want to lose a friend or, or, or an asset. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's yes. probably a longer-winded answer than you wanted, but, no, that's um, great. but I, I, I enjoy, I've really enjoyed Collins maybe more than the others, although mm. they're each yes. interesting for their own reasons. So when you when you sit down to start thinking about writing a new book or a new series, do you start with those what if scenarios, or do you start with you have an idea for a character and then you want to put them in these different scenarios, yeah. or do you think of how do you where do you start basically when you're when you're you're thinking about a new project you're working on? Um, it's been different each time. Um, well, no, it, it no actually it, it's different this time. Uh, the next book I'm writing, we're not ready to talk about yet, but <laughs> that has been a combination of a character percolating in my head, in my heart, that I don't know what to do with, but I have sort of the beginnings of him, and he interests me a lot from a couple angles. And then thinking, well, what, what should I be thinking about? What type of environment would it be good to put him in? Mm. But actually, if I, I think through... The last Jihad series that was five novels. When I think about uh, the the uh, Twelfth Imam series, uh, three novels, and then this uh, third target, first hostage, and without warning series, I think I did start with the the, the what if scenario. Um, the first series was really uh, I did take it from a biblical perspective. What if the war of Gog and Magog? Ezekiel 38 and 39, what if that were to come true in our lifetime? What if Russia really formed an alliance with Iran, built an alliance, and came to try to destroy or capture Israel? Now, I didn't start that way in terms of how I write it. I back into that premise, but that was the premise. What would that look like? What things would have to happen? What type of character would be interesting to go through that who would be very skeptical of faith to begin with and prophecy, I mean, talk about nutty. I mean, just, they would think, there's no, I am, this is, what? <laughs> you know, like, like that. So I did start with the premise, and then I worked my way backward. With the second series, it wasn't prophetic at first from what does a Bible prophecy say. My premise was all this talk in the Islamic world, particularly in that case the Shia Islamic world, about the coming of the 12th imam also known as the Mahdi, their Messiah figure. Every Muslim believes the Mahdi is coming. The Shias believe he will be known as the 12th Imam, a series of global leaders, uh, Islamic leaders. And there's a, then there's some very specific things within a, a, a cultish subset of, of Shia Islam. But my, my, my point was the Iranian leaders are talking about this all the time. People need to know what this is, but what if it were, I'm not saying what if their prophecies, what if their theology is true, but what if someone like that came? Someone that they thought, that's the guy. Now, as a believer in Christ, as a believer in the scriptures, 
you know, I, I, I couldn't start with a premise of what if Islamic prophecy comes true? I don't, it's false prophecy. Um, however, Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 that in the last days, uh, false prophets and false messiahs, false Christ will arise. Some of them will be able to do great and mighty wonders uh, so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So Jesus himself tells us that there will be leaders who come that people will think is the Messiah, who will be able to do miracles. Hmm, okay, so, what, so this is now not Islamic theology. What if, what if, based on Christian theology, a false Messiah, a false Islamic Messiah comes, and they think he's real, the Bible tells us that he's false, but, but he can do signs and wonders. It's like having an antichrist figure, but pre-tribulation. What would that look like? I'm not saying it will happen, but it could happen. What would that look like? So that was, then, I, then you create characters, what would be interesting to take? And in that case, it was, what if a family that has, had escaped out of Iran? They're Muslims, but they're not devout, and they're not apocalyptic. What if their son grows up and thinks, I want to join the CIA. I want to take out bin Laden and those folks because of 9-11. I'm a Muslim. I'm being beat up in high school because everybody thinks I'm that. I'm not that. So he joins the CIA and he wants to be trained to defeat Al-Qaeda. And right when he gets to his training being finished, the CIA says, actually, we don't want you to go after Al-Qaeda. We need you to go back into your country of Iran and help us penetrate the Iranian nuclear program, that seemed to me like an interesting way for him who would be have some knowledge of Islam, but he doesn't believe it, but he's not a Christian. Anyway, that would take us back in. And then, of course, um, with this story, it was um, a story premised on, the, uh, there are prophecies about um, Jordan being judged in the last days, but there was also a rising threat of ISIS attacking Israel, uh, Jordan, the U.S., a peace process. So this was, I guess all three of these really started up with the what-if premises, some prophetic, some geopolitical, and then creating characters that would be the most interesting ones, at least for me, <laughs> yeah. uh, to take us in there. And uh, I'm sure that other writers do it differently, but remember, I, I didn't grow up, well, ever since I was... Eight, uh, eight years old, I, I wanted to write novels and screenplays. Mm. But I didn't really think that was a job that I could prepare for, so I prepared for other things. Mm. Being a filmmaker, I went to film school, mm. and um, you know, and then I went into politics, and yeah, that went well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, other people have grown up thinking about how to develop these things, and yeah. so. Mm -hmm. Honestly, okay, let me just give you a, a, a headline too. Okay. <laughs> I don't read much fiction. I don't even really like to read fiction. And God forbid, I know I'm saying this here in Tyndale, I don't even read, I don't read Christian fiction. I'm not against it. <laughs> I just don't find it interesting for me. I, the, the world is too interesting. Yeah. And, but, but I have used fiction to try to get people who don't read nonfiction would more likely want to read a story who they might then learn, hmm, these things are really happening in our world. What, what should I think about that? I'm sort of backing into their world. Yes. See, 
you mentioned Frodo earlier, so <laughs> your next series isn't going to be a fantasy. <laughs> I don't really have the, that that skill set. No, no I uh, no. I, whether it's you know romance or I keep joking um, with uh, the Tyndale leadership that I, I need to find some Amish person to put into my book. I guess that's a, a big a, a big piece here. Yeah, so yeah. sort of. Yeah, I haven't gone there, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I really. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you'll run out of things to write, and and then you'll be like, oh, I'm going to get this fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Actually, there is a there is a fantasy writer. There was. He's passed away. But his name was Joel Rosenberg, <laughs> and he wrote uh, uh, not a believer, but he wrote uh, uh, a whole series of uh, fantasy novels, and he happened to be published by the same publisher I previously was published by. Wow. It was a Saint Martin's imprint. So he he was a. a um, he had a huge bushy beard. He was a very large man. He was a, a, a gun enthusiast. Anyway, once I got invited to the Tattered Cover, uh, the independent bookstore in Denver, uh, and they had a big poster, Welcome Joel Rosenberg, novelist. And they even put it in the newspaper, a big ad, but it was his photo. Well, my parents live in Denver, and they thought it was hilarious. They, they actually cut that out and framed it for me and gave it oh. that to me as a, as a so birthday funny. or Christmas present. Yeah. Um, and they're like, wow, you know, you've changed so much. You know, you live far away. We don't know. We didn't know you grow a beard. That's very, anyway. But oh, yeah, there's already a Joel Rosenberg uh, fantasy, fantasy novelist. Well, maybe yeah. sci-fi sci or something. What can you do? Yeah. Yeah. I want to, you know, if, yeah, I'd like to get picked up to do some Star Trek novels. You know, no. No, I, I don't. <laughs> they're they're going to make a million new Star Wars movies, so yeah. maybe you could right. get some screenwriting. I think that, you said if I run out of stories, I think when it comes to evil in our real world, this is sadly the gift that keeps on giving. Yes. Yeah. I don't think we're going to run out, and in fact, the Bible indicates things are going to get worse and worse as we get close to the return of our Savior, so... I don't know if the world keep giving me stories, but there's plenty of material. And living in Israel now is a target-rich environment. I mean, yes. it really is an interesting place to, yes. to do research and, and to write. Mm -hmm. One of the unique things about your novels, uh, Joel, is that you do attach them to current events, mm -hmm. so things that are happening in our world. So that said, uh, what do you hope that readers take away? Let's take this last series, for example. How either a reader specifically or even the church to be globally involved, what would you say um, are some of the themes you like mm. to incorporate? Well, one of the themes is, is this, to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Mm. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, as we tape this, we're, we're sitting in the offices at Tyndale on December 7th, right? This is a day that will live in infamy. This is a day that we got blindsided by an evil, Imperial Japan, that we didn't understand. We didn't understand that they had this level of passion to destroy us, or therefore that they would develop the, the, the strategies and the technical capabilities to actually pull that off. And we lost a lot of Americans, and, we, um, and it was pretty horrible. 9-11 was another moment where if you look at the, the September 11th, the 9-11 Commission, when they look back at everything, they concluded this wasn't a failure of intelligence, right? Because when you look at the data, there was a lot of information that should have told us, be on guard for this. Not that a day and a time, but, but what the Commission concluded was this was not a failure of intelligence, it was a failure of imagination. Mm -hmm. 
that we did not conceive of the possibility, but there were people out there that wanted to hit us so badly that they would develop the strategies and the technical capabilities to do it. You may recall at the time, uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, President George W. Bush, uh, uh, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, and others were saying, this was unimaginable. Now, it really wasn't. I mean, um, I had just been writing a novel about it happening, right? That's how my first novel begins. The first page of The Last Jihad puts you inside the cockpit of a jet plane hijacked by radical Islamic terrorists coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. I started writing that in January of 2001, nine months before this actually happened. Hmm. Now, Tom Clancy had written about a Japanese uh, pilot who flew a 747 into the Capitol. Now, he wasn't using radical Islam. He was still picturing back what if a, a son of a kamikaze pilot felt aggrieved but that's interesting, right? I, I took that theory, I thought that's interesting, but that's not who would do it today. I think radical Islam would give that motivation. So my point is, um, we need to understand our enemies, what drives them, what motivates them, even their theology, mm -hmm. even their eschatology, what they think about the end of days. Because once we understand their motives and we understand what they want to accomplish, then we can begin considering well, how, what strategies and technical capabilities might they come up with to accomplish their objectives. Now, in terms of the church, you know, generally speaking, we don't. It, it's not our job to protect the American people or you know, Canadians or whomever is listening uh, from the threat of radical Islam or any other evil. That's the job of government, and the scriptures are very clear about that. You know, Romans thirteen is very clear. The, the government wield a sword for a purpose, to avenge, to, to create justice and to avenge evil and so forth. What's the church's job? Well, what's the, when you look at the battle with radical Islam, ISIS, and also what I call apocalyptic Islam, uh, people who are not just driven to kill to accomplish a political motive, but they're really trying to bring about the end of the world as we know it and set up their global Islamic kingdom. Okay, so if government's job is to protect us, what's the church's job? Well, one of the things that the government is wrestling with, every government is wrestling, is when you have radical Muslims, apocalyptic Muslims, how do you change their perspective? What is it, what's the counter-narrative that will get them to not want to be killers? And they can't come up with anything. That's, and I would argue, that's the church's job. The church has the counter-narrative. The gospel changes lives. God is in the business of transforming uh, killers into servants of Christ. Paul, when he was Saul, was a religious terrorist. And no element of the homeland security or whatever the <laughs> Roman version of the CIA or whatever, it never was going to change Saul. He was a killer. He was a murderer. He was a very violent man, and he justified it on religious grounds, right? This was, this was prophetic. Jesus says in John 16, verse 2, there's coming a day when those who kill you will believe they're doing it in the service of God. Well, that was true about Saul then. It's true about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and other groups today. That's a prophecy that 
that can come in too. So only the gospel can change people. And I have met, in the course of being an author, former terrorists who were killers, who told me, if I didn't believe in Jesus right now, I would be killing you. I said, well, thank the Lord for (laughs) the power of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So I think that the church needs to be very clear. Government has its job, and we want people in government who are serious about protecting us, who won't be blindsided by an evil they won't even name, much less you know protect us from. But then we've got to be very focused on doing our job, to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations, to all people everywhere, including to the Muslim people, even if that is enormous risk, which it is. We also need to understand that, that ISIS, for example, is committing genocide in Syria, in Iraq, what's our response to genocide? We can, have, we can go to every museum in the, Holocaust museum in the world and say never again for what happened 70 plus years ago to the Jews, but there are Muslims and Christians who are being slaughtered today in genocide. Are we gonna say, well, that's not really, that has nothing to do with us? Well, that would be the same attitude as our forefathers didn't do what, everything that was possible to protect uh, Jews uh, during the Holocaust. Many did, but most didn't. Mm-hmm. So these are some th- th- ways that I think that Christians need to wrestle through. How, sh- how should I be re- responding? What, what's a biblical worldview? Where does, where does the scriptures lead me to my response? Some, I want believers to join up and work for the CIA, work for special forces, work for the government, uh, be an advisor. There's, there are roles for the Josephs and the Daniels and the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to serve in government. But then there are people like Paul, and he was not told to join the Roman government and, and fix things. He was told to go preach the gospel up to including the Caesar. So we've got to ask the Lord, what is my role? And then give me, you know, fill me with the Spirit and give me the courage to do it. Definitely. That's okay. the short answer. Yes. <laughs> Very well said. Thank well, you. Uh-huh. We're... Coming to the end of our time. Uh, the end is near. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's one of the near. themes of my... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you're <laughs> yeah. saying literally. Okay. Can, uh, we before we go, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the, the Joshua Fund? Sure. Wow. Well, the Joshua Fund uh, was started about 10 years ago. Actually, actually 10 years ago. Um, in the summer of 2006, uh, by my wife, Lynn, and myself. Um, and the mission statement is to mobilize Christians to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus according to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. These are, of course, the famous verses that are the Abrahamic covenant, and specifically that those who bless Israel, I will bless, and those who curse Israel, I will curse. But it also talks about how through Abraham's descendant, specifically the Messiah, all families on the earth will be blessed, right? So Jesus doesn't only love the Jewish people, though he has... um, you know, Jesus is Jewish. Uh, He spoke to the Jews. He came to Israel. He... His disciples were Jewish, and he does tell us to bless Israel, but he also tells us to love our neighbors and our enemies. So the Joshua Fund, in many ways, I think of it uh, uh, as a venture capital firm. Our job is to identify um, ministries in Israel and in five neighboring Arab countries, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and Iraq. What is God doing there, and how can we come along and provide prayer, encouragement, um, uh, you know, teaching, training, but also financial investment in these ministries to help them um, 
fulfill the Great Commission in the epicenter. Now, uh, it's been interesting. Over 10 years, we've seen God do amazing things. And um, uh, we, we provide uh, food uh, and other humanitarian relief supplies to the poor and the needy in Israel. We assist refugees that are fleeing from uh, Syria uh, and from Iraq. Uh, they're fleeing from ISIS, and we're, we, we fund ministries that are caring for them. We run pastors' training conferences. We, um, anyway, it's a whole range of things, both humanitarian relief, um, uh, the gospel, discipleship, pastor training, um, you know, Bible distribution, and education. Educating the church in North America and around the world. What is God's plan and purpose for Israel and her neighbors? And what should we be doing? Um, by God's grace, uh, the Lord has allowed us to invest millions and millions of dollars over these years into this work. And again, like a venture capital firm, the point is you're trying to nurture and encourage something that's good, that's already working, but needs assistance and needs encouragement and capital. And um, it's been exciting. And I would just say that uh, um, while I was, uh, my wife and I were the founders, and I was the president for, I think, eight of those years. I did step out of the day-to-day -day tactical running of the ministry. Uh, I currently serve as the chairman, uh, but we've got a great team. And uh, it's exciting because, you know, when, in many ways it came out of uh, me writing novels about worst-case scenarios in the Middle East and people saying, I would travel to conferences or, in this case, to churches, and people say, okay, so what can I as a Christian do? I believe you. What you are warning about, I'm worried about. So what? What do I do? And I would come home and I would say to my wife, I don't know what to tell them. I mean, you can't just list the dozens and dozens of ministries and the hundreds of leaders and the thousands of projects. It's impossible for me to explain that. And out of that came, okay, well, some percentage of the people that are engaged in my books might want to say, okay, I'm in. How do I help? And the Joshua becomes a landing place where they can pray, they can, we say learn, pray, give, and go. Joshua helps you learn what is God doing in the region. Um, more Jews and more Muslims are hearing the gospel and responding than ever before, but there's a lot, long way to go. Pray, how do we pray faithfully and consistently for believers and unbelievers? To give financially to the work of the kingdom there and even to go, to come on a tour uh, with us to Israel. Or if the Lord calls, by going through this process, maybe the Lord's calling you to go, to really serve in a short or, or long-term capacity to strengthen the church there. So learn, pray, give, go. That's our, uh, that's our approach at the Joshua Fund. And people can learn more about it on our website, joshuafund.com. It is totally separate from what we do with the books. It's a nonprofit. Uh, it's a member of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. There's a firewall. I can help it. It can't help me right. in terms of books. So yeah. I'm very happy about yeah. that. So. And if they want to learn more about you, they can go to joelrosenberg.com. They can get to your blog for the website. That's right. And, and there's also, of course, we have a, a, a Facebook page, a public Facebook page called Joel Rosenberg's Epicenter Team. And, uh, and of course, uh, Twitter, Joel, uh, at Joel C. Rosenberg and, um, and sign up for your your newsletter. Yeah, so as you can, uh, if you go to the blog, you'll see what's called an RSS feed. You just put in your email. We don't ask for any other information. And then every blog posting that I put up um, 
will uh, you'll get it sent directly to your email. We're phasing out what, uh, an email that I used in the past called Flash Traffic, um, uh, but that was a pay service, and I'm Jewish, and I decided <laughs> I didn't want to pay for it anymore, and I thought, so we're phasing that out. But, uh, um, but also, the, the other thing, I'm grateful to do uh, Tyndale's podcast, and we're going to um, very soon relaunch um, the, uh, a, a specific podcast where you'll get really updates from Israel, from the, from the epicenter, from the Middle East on what's happening and uh, I'm excited about getting uh, back into the podcasting world and Great. grateful you guys have started yeah. Yeah. Uh, this podcast and honored to be uh, on your program. Yeah, yeah. and Thank your, you, your next book, Without Warning, comes out in March. So we'll be looking forward to all the stuff that's going to be happening around that. Too. It's, it, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to launching this book, the third in the trilogy. And, and as you know, um, uh, the King of Jordan uh, recently read... Um, the oh, second in the series, wow. and rather than banning me from the kingdom, uh, invited my wife and I to spend five days with him, uh, wow. and it was so fascinating. And uh, yeah, you never know when you're a failed political <laughs> consultant uh, who's going to read a novel that you wrote, and and it is opening very interesting doors. Uh, uh, I don't know when this will run, but next week from when we're talking, uh, I've invited to go up and have dinner with uh, uh, Canada's former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Uh, he has been reading my books and enjoying them, and now that he has a little extra time on his hands, uh, <laughs> yeah. has invited me up for dinner. So it's interesting, you know how yeah. uh, I love meeting people who read the books. I, I don't expect them to be prime ministers and kings, but yeah. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, you, know? that's so okay. you never know. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. Uh, well, thank you. It's been yeah. fun to be with yeah, you guys. Yeah, thank, thank you so much, Paul. Thanks. Thanks.